Welcome to episode 48 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversation with PsychArmor Trust partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to psychomer.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by the generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This episode is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military cultural content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. On today's episode, we'll be featuring a conversation with Bill Braniff, co-founder and board member of We the Veterans a nonpartisan and nonprofit organization that unites private and public sector experts and leaders to find solutions to our nation's biggest challenges. Bill is an Army veteran and director of the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, START, and a professor of the practice at the University of Maryland. He previously served as the Director of Practitioner Education at West Point's Combating Terrorism Center and instructor at the Department of Social Sciences as a foreign affairs specialist with the National Nuclear Security Administration and as an armor officer in the United States Army. You can find out more about Bill by checking out his bio in our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with him and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. Much of your work lies in the connected but separate worlds of counterterrorism and academia. I'm interested in hearing about your journey from the military service, which you were involved in practical applications of counterterrorism, and that you work now with the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism Responses to Terrorism. Sure. So like many my age, I, I was a, a scout platoon leader on 9-11 in an armor battalion in Germany. And that was my first day as a scout platoon leader, actually. I showed up at work in the aftermath of the attack. It was the evening there, and this hard-as-nails NCO, Sergeant Rainey, looked me up and down as new platoon leader, and he said, hey, sir, are we going to war? And I said, yeah, I just don't know where. This, the strategic surprise of 9-11, the profound ignorance that we had, not knowing what was going to happen on September 12th, October 11th, September 11th, 2002, that ignorance, that, that unknown was frightening, but also compelling. And, and I, I wanted to know, I wanted to understand, and I wanted to, to be in a position to actually do something about the threat of terrorism. And as much as I loved being an armor officer, tanks are not the required tool or the, or the best tool to, re to respond to terrorism. Terrorism is inherently a political and social phenomenon. Terrorism is inherently political. And as much as we hate to admit it, that means counterterrorism is inherently political. It's not just about law enforcement and military operations. We need to get a little bit deeper into social and political issues if we're going to really be able to minimize the threat over time. And so that started me on this journey. I had the good fortune of working at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, an amazing organization, trained FBI, CIA, Joint Special Operations University, national security prosecutors, state department officials, state and local law enforcement. And so I had this unbelievably privileged perch to see the counterterrorism problem from just about every vantage point across the federal, state, and local government, and then got to partner with START at the University of Maryland and, and the brilliant researchers we have there to translate the research they were doing into practice because of my practitioner background. Uh, and so I just feel like I've had this really amazing opportunity to merge practice and, and research and to be that conduit. And I, I take that very seriously. 
I think that's really uh, beneficial to hear that moving from the practical application to the theoretical, but then how do we apply what, what we know theoretically? I was in Germany as well on 9-11, and, and, and for a small number of us like you, it happened for us in the afternoon and, like you said, in the evening, but it was a surprise. It's a very delineating time between before and after. Before that, counterterrorism was practical to a small group of people, but then counterterrorism became everybody's mission and everybody's job. And, and that took a shift in a lot of people's thinking going from conventional warfare to sort of this, and obviously all the iterations that we had in Iraq and Afghanistan of counterterrorism operations and things like that. It's, it's absolutely right. And, and I would argue that not only did counterterrorism become eventually something that the conventional force had to care about, it eventually became something that the CEOs in boardrooms across America had to care about. It became something that sisters and brothers and friends had to care about. With the explosive growth of the role of social media and uh, online communications and online capabilities beyond just communication, as that technology advanced, terrorism started becoming the, the writ not just of the federal government, but of whole of society. It turns out that when you study radicalization and ind individual level mobilization to violence, there are warning signs and indicators but those warning signs and indicators are going to be visible, observable to mom, to soccer coach, to guidance counselor, to best friend. And if those individuals aren't empowered with good information uh, so that they're aware uh, of, of those kinds of warning signs, and then just as importantly, they know what to do with that information. And ideally, they have a non-criminal justice phone number they can dial. Mom and best friend, they don't want to call the FBI. They want to call a helping professional a counselor, uh, a faith leader, a role model, and wrap their arms around that person before they cross a criminal threshold, right? Before they go down a road from which it's very hard to come back from. And so part of the genesis of the organization that we'll be discussing here in a minute, We the Veterans, is to create that multi-level, meaning individual, family, community, multidisciplinary, multi-sectoral violence prevention ecosystem to get that in place so that the people who are likely to see someone struggling with, with issues like misinformation, conspiracy theories, or violent extremism, they're empowered to do something about it, and they know who they can call it to, to help their loved one out. Now, I, I appreciate that concept in a number of different ways, but that primary prevention concept is the people that are most likely to notice the problem at present are least likely prepared to deal with that problem, whether it's counterterrorism, I do a lot of work in suicide prevention, same yeah. thing. Firefighting, right? The firefighter is not in my kitchen when a fire starts. I'm the one that has to understand basic primary fire prevention to ensure that my house doesn't burn down and it becomes something bigger for people whose quote unquote job it is. And you mentioned in your role, you were a co-founder of We the Veterans, uh, a nonprofit that seeks to promote civic engagement in the military affiliated community, specifically around counterterrorism and radicalization. It's around counterterrorism or radicalization to violence. It's also about mis- and disinformation. If you think about what a violent extremist or a terrorist organization does, they use violence to hammer a wedge issue deeper into the fabric of our society. So through symbolic acts of violence, like uh, attacking an abortion clinic, attacking a government facility, uh, attacking someone of a different race or ethnicity or religion, you drive these wedge issues deeper into the fabric of our society. You polarize society. You create an us versus them environment. So in the case of terrorism, violence is the tool to drive that social political agenda to create an us versus them environment. If you think about hostile influence operations emanating from overseas, they look at wedge issues, they look for those wedge issues, and they try to drive those wedge issues deeper into the fabric of our society using influence campaigns. And so both of these 
threats to American democracy, to self-governance, are pointed at the same wedge issues, those same vulnerabilities in our societies. We believe very strongly that by reinforcing our civic foundation, the, the idea of compromise and debate and informed debate with good information, we can really shore up that middle ground, that place where people can come together to solve problems, to think critically, and hold the fabric of society together more tightly. And we think veterans are incredibly well-placed to do that. Veterans are engaged in amazing activities all across the nation, right? They are serving their nation in so many positive ways. They have a respected place in American society. They've sacrificed for the last two decades. And so people venerate the veterans who, who they get to commune with in their localities. We want to harness all the strengths of that veteran population and build upon that foundation of civics in order to help protect American democracy. The same pledge that you and I made to support the Constitution, we want, we want that service to continue. And we think veterans are extremely interested in continuing to serve their nation. And furthermore, it's, it's not just the veteran community, it's the military family community right? Spouses have sacrificed incredibly. Children have sacrificed incredibly over the last couple of decades, but they do it because they, in part, they love the country. And so we think there's an opportunity to really galvanize the 17 million strong veteran and military family community around these issues of civics in order to crowd out vulnerabilities to misdisinformation and to violent extremism, which both of which threaten uh, U.S. democracy. And we think that now is the time. As amazing as veterans are, and, and as much as we want to take a strengths-based approach to harness all the capabilities and talents of the veteran and military family community, we have to be cognizant of the fact that violent extremists and mis disinformation campaigns, they target veterans and military families as prize recruits. Because of the privileged place that, that veterans and military families have in our society, if I can sway them to my worldview and get them to be the cudgel that's hitting that wedge issue, driving it deeper into the fabric of society, that's a real win. For a hostile actor. And so veterans, unfortunately, and especially at the end of major conflict operations, while they've not, they've not compromised a large percentage of our violent extremist community, they've had an oversized impact on violent extremism in the United States. And this is after the Civil War. This is after World Wars I and II. This is after Vietnam and Korea. And we're ending the two longest wars in U.S. history unsatisfactorily in, in two Muslim-majority countries. And so we just think that the veteran community can and, and should lead. It's got an incredible potential to lead but it's also at risk. And we need to put a prevention ecosystem into place now before there's a, a crescendo of recruitment into these kinds of malicious campaigns. And unfortunately, with our data, we're seeing that over the last decade, there's been a tripling of the number of veterans who are involved in some sort of extremist crime compared to decades past. So even already, we're starting to see an uptick in the number of, of veterans engaged in violent extremism. Again, the numbers are small, but those veterans can play an outsized role. We saw this on January 6th. No, I, I really appreciate it. And, and first, the beginning of that concept, you use the word foundation and almost like a physical foundation, the foundational value of our democracy. If there are cracks in that foundations, outside actors are going to widen those into gaps. And if there are gaps, they're going to widen those into separations. And we all know the, the cliche of built on a foundation, a poor foundation, the house is going to fall. So that idea of cracks in the foundation, we veterans either have the ability to fill in those cracks, repair that foundation. And at the same time, like you said, we have the vulnerability to be the tool that increases those gaps into separations. That's exactly right. The analogy also happens to jive with what we understand about human psychology, right? Civics 
if you think about civic, civics is kind of a, a political manifestation of the ability to negotiate shades of gray. We, we call this integrative complexity. The world is actually really complicated and it's hard for us to navigate a complicated world. But if we can learn the critical thinking skills that allow us to navigate a complex world, we're much more resilient to challenges that we face. We're much stronger. We're going to be more successful. At a societal level, civics is like building that integrative complexity at the individual psychological level. It allows us to compromise, debate, but engage in productive, pro-social progress as a collective, right? We, we can self-govern. And that's what this is about, right? American democracy is about self-governance. And civics is the thing that allows us to self-govern through a complicated world. Terrorist narratives and propaganda, ideology, conspiracy theories, they play to something called cognitive closure. We all desire cognitive closure, which is the idea that the world is black and white, right and wrong, good and bad, evil and just. And so a terrorist organization paints that picture. A conspiracy paints that picture that there is good and there is bad. There's no gray area. There's no middle ground. There's no room for compromise. And therefore, violent empowerment is the only solution to the victimhood that your people are facing at the hands of this other threat. And that other threat might be the other political party. It might be the other race or religion. It might be individuals who have other views on single issue phenomena like abortion or gun rights or these environmental issues. So the whole point of terrorist propaganda, conspiracy theories, is to get you to give up on navigating the shades of gray, the real world, doing the hard work of civics, and to fall victim to this idea that violence is the is necessary and legitimate as the solution. And that violence against the other is justified. And so if we can build our civic foundation, if we can flex that muscle, strengthen that muscle, it literally crowds out the opportunity space for violent extremists and conspiratorial anti-government narratives, these sorts of things. And so the foundation is where you prevent lots of problems from emerging down the road. If you build that strong foundation, you're actually doing quite a bit to help yourself out over the long run. Maybe the last thing I'll say about this particular topic, terrorists understand the importance of culture. We, we think about terrorism often through sort of very rational actor kinds of approaches, right? And we think about radicalization through psychological approaches. We, we sometimes don't pay enough attention to arts and humanities, right? Terrorist organizations create culture. They try to create a culture that allows for the political outcomes that they want down the road. They call this metapolitics, right? If you can influence the, the way a society thinks about right and wrong, good and bad at a cultural level, eventually you'll get the political outcomes you want because people will vote for them or, or will act uh, to support those kinds of actors. We the Veterans wants to create a culture of civics. We have a culture of civics in the United States. We want to reinforce that culture of civics because if, if we reinforce that culture of civics, the politics will be okay. And if the politics are okay, the violent politics won't have as much oxygen to feed off. No, I really appreciate that. And, and really understanding that veteran culture, as you'd mentioned, it could be particularly susceptible to that. I even think back to your story about Sergeant Rainey and that simple question, are we going to war? He wanted the simple answer, yes or no. But that's also a very complex answer, as you said, is where, when, how long, right? All of these things that none of us knew that evening of September 11th, but but we crave, and, and service members especially crave, rationality out of chaos. It's what we do. We live in chaos and we create rational things out of that. And so that can create for veterans, I, I desire simplicity. Give me the simple answer to this complex thing that's sort of overwhelming to me. That's exactly right. And veterans are humans and, and we all want to be able to be confident in the decisions we make, especially the consequential, especially the decisions when 
important things hanging in the balance, like our lives, the lives of our, our fellow soldiers, the, the, the politics of our nation. And so when, you, when the stakes get high and uncertainty is high, that creates a massive psychological pressure to pursue that black and white answer. Uncertainty is really problematic psychologically for humans, right? We just really struggle with uncertainty. Even worse for veterans, I think. I, I think that's, that's probably right. right? If, if you've been indoctrinated in a regimented world, the uncertainty of civilian life and, and living with no rules and no chain of command, right? These things can be problematic. And mis and disinformation actually is intended to magnify uncertainty. I think we often think that mis and disinformation is about intentionally telling untruths to, to trick people, right? So telling lies to trick people into believing the wrong thing. Now, that's part of it. But one of the most powerful parts of mis and disinformation is that it just elevates uncertainty to such a degree that I can no longer figure out which direction is up, who to believe, what to believe, how to believe. And all of that uncertainty amplified by misdisinformation makes me give up. I become apathetic and I just go with whatever's easiest. Mm-hmm. And, and so these things are interrelated. Misdisinformation, violent extremism, the desire for a black and white ideology or set of rules. This is how you should act to fix the problem. Don't worry about all this other information. And so we, the veterans, are trying to create several working groups, a working group around violent extremist prevention. So violence prevention ecosystem, harnessing all of the amazing veterans organizations around the country and and military families around the country. This will all be research informed work. Start like my research organization is going to be under the hood, trying to make sure that what we're doing is uh, scientifically valid, objective, and that will measure its success over time so we can get better with our programming. We can measure and evaluate what we do. A second working group on misdisinformation, a third working group on civics. And this will include both civics education, but also protecting free and fair and peaceful elections, the the hallmark of a democracy, the peaceful transfer of power through representative elections. So these three working groups will be three substantive lines of effort but all of it will be undergirded by research. All of it will be undergirded by research-informed training and capacity-building programs that will roll out. And we're also looking to do things like create a veterans coalition. This basically serves as our steering committee. We want to be representative of the veteran community writ large across the board, across the aisle, across age demographics. So that we'll have a working group that really just convenes veterans organizations so that they can drive we the veterans. We're, we're trying to be a convener, a coalescer, but veterans need to be at the helm here more broadly. And then a public event or or an annual public event where we try to transmit some of the the work that we're doing in terms of research and education and really just drum up, enlist veterans to serve once again in our civic foundation building and and the protection of our democracy. And I think that's really key is one, all of us who serve need a mission after the military, right? What do we do next? And as you'd mentioned, we're emerging out of the longest period of declared conflict in our country's history. Where do we go from here? The threat of terrorism isn't going away, either directed at us or what we need to predict to to work against so that future threats. And now there are generations of service members that have returned to their community. What do you see is the next step that we need to do as a veteran community in this aftermath of the global war on terror being diminished? So I think we have to take care of each other. Watching Taliban take control of Afghanistan was brutal. I think it was really hard for for a lot of us. Uh, And I think we have to help channel uh, some of the frustration that we all might be feeling towards positive pro-social, pro-democracy and self-governance causes. We need to understand that we might be changing phases in terms of our sort of counterterrorism posture but Al-Qaeda is 33 years old. It's founded in August of 19. 
1988, the so-called Islamic State in 2019 conducted attacks in about 36 countries. The Islamic State has not been defeated. It, the territory of the caliphate has been taken back from them. But ISIS is still active in Iraq and Syria. ISIS is active in, in over 30 other uh, countries around the world. And so we have to be cognizant of the fact that these are enduring international threats, right? These groups will be with us for decades and decades and decades. At the same time, we have to recognize the KKK is 155 years old. So domestic violent extremism will remain and is unfortunately a growing concern. Anti-government extremists, white supremacists, these are the populous kinds of, of violent extremists in the United States. They are, if you exclude the attacks of 9-11, which are anomalous historically, even if you exclude Oklahoma City bombing as well, the two most lethal attacks on U.S. soil, white supremacist movements are the most active, the most populous, the most, most lethal movements in the United States. And so we have to, as veterans, we, we just have to understand that there will be recruitment attempts by militia groups, by you know, government militia groups, by white supremacist groups, and other a whole host of other domestic violent extremist actors to try to capture our human capital. And we just have to make sure that we're building resilience against those domestic violent extremist threats. Um, again, because they can then be amplified by hostile foreign influence operations designed to turn us against one another. Uh, this is not new. Soviet doctrine harnessed hate crimes across NATO in the 1960s in a decade-long campaign to try to use neo-Nazi hate crimes as a way to drive a wedge between NATO countries, specifically Germany and others. Hostile Russian influence operations will continue to use hate crimes and, and terrorism and amplify those instances when they occur to turn us against one another. So creating these prevention ecosystems Using a strengths-based approach, recognizing that we have the tools and the capabilities to really crowd out these vulnerabilities, we just have to harness them. And I think that's where our energy needs to be. And, and I think We the Veterans is really trying to step into this space and help empower other veterans organizations to play these important roles. In no way do we think that, that other veterans organizations are not doing incredibly valuable things, right? And if you're volunteering in your community after natural disasters through Team Rubicon, you are serving your nation. We just want to inject a little bit of civics and a little bit of understanding about violent extremism awareness into these organizations so that if they do have one of their brothers or sisters who starts to struggle with maybe the wrong kinds of friends online, they know how to wrap their arms around that person. They know how to direct them to, to healthful VA services or other services. They just have that awareness. They're, they're part of this ecosystem, but they're still Team Rubicon. They're still doing what they do, which is incredibly valuable. So I, I think if we have the awareness, the self-awareness to, to avoid becoming the unwitting tool of a hostile actor will go a long way to preventing a next spike of domestic violent extremism. And I think that's something that's in, in really that idea of taking care of our fellow service members, so to speak. Sometimes we think in that as like healing their wounds, right? I, as a mental health professional, is like taking care of what's been broken. But you're also talking about hey, don't go down that path. You're making some bad decisions. So let me come in and keep you from getting into a crisis. In this instance, per, perhaps maybe a, a, a criminal or some type of, of violent crisis. But really, it's as you'd mentioned, it's preventive. And I think that's really the goal. I would even go further than that. So we're taking a very intentional public health approach to these issues. And what that means is we're engaging in primary prevention. Primary prevention is uh, kind of like anti-terrorism. You're trying to make people into harder targets, right? If I can increase your online cyber literacy so you, you know how to check the provenance of, of material before you, you read it or amplify a bit of mis and disinformation, right? I, that's preventative work. I'm making it harder, making you more resilient to these harms before they even get to you. That could be civics education. That can be 
awareness about violent extremism indicators and warning signs. I can engage in, in interventions. We know interventions can work because we, we do them across all different sorts of harms and hazards. Uh, multidisciplinary interventions can work for people who are flirting with the wrong people online or the wrong people in the real world. As long as we have non-criminal justice tools, friends and family, loved ones will be more likely to enroll someone into those non-criminal justice interventions before they go down the road. But there's also rehab reintegration. We know from experience, uh, from research, that some individuals do go down these dark pathways and then they want to get out. And the people that they will turn to are people that they trust, people who they, they think won't judge them. And so in the case of veterans, it's going to be other veterans, right? Other veterans are going to be the ones who are going to be the trusted messengers who could pull somebody back from participation in some of these movements, whether it's a conspiratorial movement or a, a violent extremist ideology that somebody has adopted. Sometimes people want to leave and we need to be ready to help them get out. If we don't, if we just give up on those individuals, what we're basically saying is that we don't think people can change. And we know that's not true. We know for a fact that people do leave this stuff behind. We need to reduce those obstacles. And so if we can cover that waterfront from prevention to interventions to rehab reintegration, that approach should allow us to drastically minimize the number of, of veterans and, and, and individuals in the military community who are at risk of engaging in some kind of, of active violence, or it's just something that's really harmful to American democracy. Over time, it might be that other threats to American democracy emerge. And we, the veterans, would then start to convene working groups that were multi-sectoral, public-private, multidisciplinary, and we would try to come up with innovative solutions to address those hazards. But for right now, it's violent extremism and misdisinformation is, is where we're going to start. You know, and I think that's uh, it's definitely some great work. So if people wanted to find out more about We the Veterans and the work that you're doing, how can they do that? So I guess the quick answer is to find the website online. And that URL is one word, wetheveterans.us, wetheveterans.us. And that'll take you to, to the website. We are currently working to convene or, or to establish these working groups that I mentioned on violent extremism, on mis- and disinformation, and on civics. Uh, and so if someone is interested, they can also reach out to us directly. My email is braniff at umd.edu. And just let's let us know that you're interested and we'll try to fold you into our interdisciplinary work. And, and then maybe stay tuned. We're shooting for a very public facing event, a virtual event in 2022. So the idea is to have a, a bit of a, a coming out party where we can talk about some of the, the work that the working groups are engaging in and, and really start to enlist a broad coalition of veterans and military families across the nation. Stay tuned for that. That's still a work in progress as we secure funding and, and, and partners across the veteran community, across the DOD, the VA, Department of Homeland Security, Silicon Valley, really this broad swath of organizations that we really want on board because we know that we, we have to do this together. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'll make sure that all links to those things are in the show notes. So thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. I'm glad to have been able to have this conversation with Bill, especially about this important topic. Civics and civic engagement is a foundation of the concept of our country. I'll have to admit that foundational concepts and the ideals of democracy were not always top of mind during my time in the military, but this is part of the larger reason why those who choose to serve do so. 
to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, and the Constitution is the codification of these concepts and ideals. But this conversation with Bill begs the question, how do we continue to engage in self-governance and civic debate in a world in which communications technology is both a benefit and a potential threat to those concepts? We the Veterans is focusing on a wide range of topics, as Bill mentioned, but the one that we talked about here is the potential radicalization of service members to be used as agents of domestic terrorism. First, as with anything, we have to develop awareness. Awareness that the information that we're receiving may not automatically be accurate, even if it's coming from a source that's sometimes accurate or that has been trusted in the past. We've released a couple of other episodes focused on journalism and the need to critically evaluate both the information and the source of that information. This is a topic that interests you. I suggest you check out these episodes, which will be linked in our show notes. After we become aware of the fact that the information we're receiving is not entirely accurate or can automatically be trusted, we must act on that awareness. We must remain vigilant to understand the potential pitfalls in the information we're receiving. Is the language being used something that's emotionally driven rather than rational? Is what we're consuming more opinion than fact? We also have to understand the importance of nuance and compromise. Otto von Bismarck, a German statesman in the late 1800s and the first chancellor of a unified Germany, is quoted as saying, politics is the art of the possible, the attainable, the art of the next best thing. These days, compromise is often considered a weakness, a failing. But it is that lack of compromise and inability to see more than one side of an argument, or even acknowledge the potential validity of an opposing argument, that is driving a deeper wedge between us. Another thing that we have to do is mistrust absolute statements. No thing is all one thing or another. As Bill said, we all want to have the stark contrast between two choices, a choice between red and green. What we really have to deal with is the shades of colors between the two. Anytime I hear phrases like all or none, many or few, always or never, it's a signal to me that the speaker wants me to think a certain way about a certain thing, and it's usually the way that they think. These are just some of my thoughts after having a conversation with Bill. Glad to know that he and his organization are helping to bring some of these concepts to life. The other thing that I appreciate in my conversation with Bill is how he pointed out that We the Veterans is taking a public health approach to addressing myths and disinformation and violent extremism in service members and veterans. There's a lot of discussion about public health, especially as the coronavirus continues and governments from the local to the federal level are attempting to keep people physically healthy. But I really appreciate the holistic approach that Bill and We the Veterans are applying to the radicalization of those who serve. First, he said we must engage in primary prevention, having conversations that will develop awareness in service members and veterans so that they don't fall prey to those who will use us to drive their own agenda. Beyond that, if a service member or veteran does start to get engaged in violent extremism or a particular ideology that's counter to civil discourse, how do we support those who care for them to conduct an intervention before things go too far, before belief turns into action and potential criminal activity or harm to others? And finally, how do we support those who have engaged in harmful behaviors that are counter to our nation's founding ideals, hate, violence, extremism, and who want to get out, who want to change? That's where supporting rehabilitation and reintegration comes in. People can change. We've all done it ourselves. The way that we think about things now is not the same way we thought about them 20 years ago, and our life experience made that change happen. There are things that we were wrong about then or probably things that we're wrong about now. If we think that those who have made minor mistakes in the past deserve a second chance, whether those were crimes driven by necessity or people who have wronged us in our relationships, could that not also apply to those who have made significant mistakes or extremely poor choices? If we're guarding against absolutes and holding up the ideals of democracy, 
Shouldn't we give those who have been radicalized an opportunity to change? If we say that once people have crossed a certain line, then they've gone too far, then we may be removing hope and humanity from the equation. The first problem with that is we have to agree on where that gone too far line is. So as you can tell from this wrap up, this conversation with Bill sparked a lot of thoughts within me, and I hope that it did so within you as well. If it did, and you're interested in the work that we the veterans are doing, check them out through the links in the show notes. For this week's Psych Armor Resource of the Week, I'd like to share the Psych Armor course, How to Connect with a Checked Out Veteran. This course provides information to help family and caregivers identify if a veteran is checked out or emotionally disconnected. It explains how to rebuild emotional connection, how to recognize and avoid common mistakes when engaging with checked out veterans, and understand how to approach the veteran. You can find a link to the course in our show notes. So thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in your podcast player of choice, as well as at psychomer.org forward slash podcast. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation, and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.